0: I don't think I've ever heard a barbecue advertise as come and uh, encounter the dirty smells. Um, I've been at Daniel's house; it's a very clean place, and so um, and we would encourage you to come if you don't know about Daniel. Um, my man was raised in Argentina, and so he can grill uh, like an Argentinian. Um, And so treat yourself, come by, make some friends, eat some good food. Uh, Romans chapter 5, we're continuing where we've left off. If you haven't been here in a bit or haven't tuned in to the sermons previously, I really would encourage you to do so. Um, During this series, uh, we've been through incredibly rich portions of Scripture that uh, if we really wrestle with what God has been trying to speak to us, it's transformative. You don't remain the same. Um, and so I encourage you to uh, go to the website here, the previous sermons in particular. Uh, we really had some fun this uh, July. We had outside guest speakers. Um, uh, well, in one outside guest speaker, some in-house speakers preach into this series. We've been some, in some really rich portions of scripture. Let God speak to you. Saturate the word of God. And with that said, we're continuing where we left off. We're going to begin in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 21. It says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity this gift that it is to worship as a community, to gather together in your name under your lordship. And we pray you'd speak to us, to every single one of us from your word. Holy Spirit, would you fill this very room and most importantly fill our hearts that we might hear the voice of God, your voice, and see Jesus more clearly. And we thank you, Father, for the grace that you meet us in. We ask that you would transform us and speak to us and meet us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This past uh, July, as as many of you know, uh, I was off during uh, the church every year. has graciously given me a prayer and study month, a time to just disconnect, unplug, um, pray, be with my family. It's an unbelievable restorative time. Um, and it just so happens that it falls on, um, every year during July, I have some significant anniversaries that I celebrate. And so at the end of July, July 28th, celebrated 16 years of marriage with my amazing wife, Erin. Um, she, she deserves all that applause. Um, but also, uh, this, this may not, some of you may not know this, but I also celebrated 10 years of being at Hope Astoria this July. So I joined um, the staff here July of, oh man, I'm going to show that, okay, no, my math is right. Okay, July 2013 is when I joined the staff here at Hope Astoria Uh, And 10 years later, the things that God has done. I'm so grateful. As I was reflecting on these significant anniversaries, it made me think back to um, chapters in my life, periods uh, in the past that were significant. And I remember uh, my prior church. I've only been a part of two Christian churches my whole life, two churches, period. Um, And so. uh, yeah, when I commit, I commit. (laughs) Um, And so that previous church, I was there from the age of 14 to 33. And so if some of you are waiting for me to retire and leave, be patient. It's not going to happen anytime soon. And so, but at that previous church, I witnessed honestly an amazing miracle. Um, That church was comprised primarily of Uh, The majority were Puerto Rican, but many other nationalities and ethnicities, primarily Latino, but it became more diverse over the years. But there was a shared common experience among many of the first members of this church in that many of us grew up on public assistance, grew up below the poverty line, and, and some um, had issues with addiction and struggles with um, substance abuse and some even in and out of prison. That wasn't everybody, but there was a good amount of folks that that was their story. And God meets us, transforms us. And now many of us go to school, some for the first time in our families getting degrees from higher uh, institutions of higher learning or, or starting businesses or, or getting careers. And then some folks begin to buy homes. And, and, and yet in the midst of it, I can honestly say, I carry it with me to this day, the culture of generosity that was instilled in us as followers of Jesus in that church, where we live with our hands open. We lived with a sense that what we have, we don't own. It belongs to Jesus, whatever he wants us to do. And so some of the most sacrificially generous people I've ever met, and we had this moment together as a church where we had an opportunity to buy a building, which in New York is historic. Churches don't get to buy buildings too often, And we bought a building of buildings. We bought a former Knights of Columbus social club. You ever seen any of those? If you go through the boroughs, they still exist today, Knights of Columbus. um, It's like a a wedding hall, a venue. It's a social thing. Been around New York for quite some time. And we bought this property. um, And it's like, I remember, it's like 120 feet and then about like 75 feet this way. This is a big lot for Brooklyn. And because of the air rights um, that you could build up these days, guess how much that property is worth today? Uh, oh, buddy, uh, five million would be nice. I think it's upwards of 20, um, the value of it. But guess how much we bought it for? $400,000. Absolute miracle. This was in 1990. Man, you guys are all into it. You're like, what? Oh, what was the interest rate? And so, uh, absolute miracle. What God did. After we bought it, it was refinanced the next year and it was valued at 1.2 something. We believe a mistake happened in our favor when they appraised it. Um, it was an amazing moment. Church still exists today. My brother pastors it. And so, but I remember when we got it, the neighbors weren't too happy with us because the first thing we did was we had to chop down this massive tree. Now, some of you would be like, oh, my gosh. How dare you? Do you know how green of a thumb I have? How could you do that to the environment? This this tree was massive. And so this was pre-email days. It wasn't that popular or it was just starting to. So we were getting multiple calls. How dare you? You guys just moved in. You have not had value to it. You tore down this tree. Neighbors saying, I got shade from that tree. And now it's gone. And the thing was, they were confused because if you looked at it from the street, this tree was beautiful. It blossomed, it had leaves and in season and all the stuff. But if you came on the other side of the gate and you looked, it was completely rotted from within. So, any given storm, that tree is going to go from giving you shade to introducing you to Jesus, you know, very quickly. (laughs) And so, when we began to explain to them, hey, this, this is not a vanity thing or an aesthetic thing. This is for your safety, for the safety of kids, they began to understand. But I remember that moment, the kind of the disorientation of, on the outside, this thing looked beautiful, but inside it was rotting. And sadly, that really speaks to a lot of life, that on the outside, things look great. But as you get closer, as you peel back the layers, you discover that there's a lot of unhealth. I think in our days especially, we live in a moment where we're constantly curating an image of ourselves for other people. We post the best stuff, we share the best stuff. But if we get close enough, we'll encounter the rot. But I'd say even bigger than that, as society, I think there's aspects of our shared experience as people that we could say, "Man, there's beauty. There's 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 life there. There's goodness there. It's not all negative. And yet, despite the beauty, despite the life, if we get deeper inside, there is rot. There's disease. There's something deep and sick." that mere cosmetics can't fix. They would have loved for us to say we could trim some branches and everything's good. That would not have solved the rot. It needed to be uprooted completely because it was that rotten. As we've been journeying through Romans, I think it's important to note exactly how God diagnoses us, what he says about our true condition, and if we are grasping what God says, we come away with the sense that our condition is far more serious. That a few little alterations and kind of uh, paint here and cosmetics there was never going to be enough. That our situation was far more serious. That the rot was deep. It was. It went to the roots, and and we didn't need some light touches, some light changes. We needed something absolutely, fundamentally transformative. And what we've learned is that Jesus came and accomplished just that, that what he did for us, for both religious and non-religious, he created a salvation experience that you and I can grab hold of through faith, through grace, that is something that we don't earn, we don't deserve, we could never merit. He changed the scorecard. Now the idea is never, what can I do for God, to God, in order for him to bless me? Now the reality is, what has he done that I could never do? What did he do on our behalf? What was the heavy lifting, the intervention that only he could have accomplished that now our part is to receive it, to believe it, to graciously say thank you? And that's where transformation begins. Romans is giving us this reality through the justifying work of Jesus. It's letting us know God's answer to our sin, to our brokenness, is what he's done in Jesus. But here's what we're getting at today. If we're not careful, if we misread what God's saying, we could come away thinking That the justifying work of Jesus is him doing some slight cosmetics on our lives rather than him addressing the rot, the root, the fundamental issue that drives everything else. If we're not careful, we could think that what Jesus offers us is basically on the brokenness of our life and the rot of the human experience, what he does, he just puts this label on it and says, you're forgiven now. And we walk around as if like we were this old banged up car that got a fresh paint job and it looks new on the outside, but it's the same old parts, same brokenness. It's not going to go anywhere. Sometimes we can walk around with an understanding of justification that's surface deep that's skin deep, that alters our lives just slightly, but doesn't fundamentally transform it. Yet, what we're reading today and discovering in Romans is that when Jesus did what he did, he was not applying a Band-Aid to the human sore. He was fundamentally healing it from within because he did something absolutely transformative. Now, In order for us to understand what Jesus truly did, we have to take a moment to appraise and understand what he was trying to heal. The nature, the essence, the depth of the rot, the the, the depth of the decay. We have to take a moment to understand it. And what we discover in Romans is that our situation was far graver than just the fact that you and I... behave sinfully or that people behave sinfully toward us, what we discover in Romans is it was more than just the things that we do. Jesus was saving us from who we are. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all Sinned. Going down to verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What we're made to understand is that sin entered into the world through our forebears, through our parents, Adam and Eve. What this idea comes from, or rather a way to explain this idea, there's a concept called federal headship. Theologian scholars tossed this idea around, and I'll be honest, some folks really have a hard time with it, and they disagree with it, because its implications are very heavy. And you'll understand why, in a moment, why people say, I'm not sure I want to ascribe to it, yet I think it's pretty clear and plain in the scripture that it's something we have to wrestle with. The idea of federal headship is this. It's similar to the way an elected official votes on your and my behalf. And their votes, we are not disconnected from that. We can't claim that they voted in a way that, like, we're absolved from it. If we voted them in office, right? They're in office, we voted them in, and now they make all these decisions as people who represent us. And so their actions represent us. And so in a very real way, someone could walk up to you in the street, if you voted for whoever you voted for, and they made a certain policy decision, they could walk up to you and I in the street and say, why did you make that policy decision? And you could say, no, I didn't make that that, that decision, I didn't do that, and say, did you vote for them? Yes. So, again, why did you make that policy decision? It's uncomfortable. We want to create some distance because, especially in our very individualistic society, Western culture, we say the individual is king. doesn't matter what your past says, your family of origin. What matters is what you decide. You have that lineage is broken. The impact of that has no say today. Yet, What we see in this text is the absolute opposite. We see that what took place in our forebears has an undeniable lineage, an unbreakable chain that's connected to your life and mine. That through one man's sin and disobedience, the many were made sinners. This is a huge thing to wrestle with. What it tells us is that our problem, our struggle, the thing we need to be saved from is not just the sins we commit, but it's the lineage we're from. And that is a way trickier situation to solve. Because your family follows you wherever you go. Did you know that? Your family follows you wherever you go. Whenever someone meets you, they meet the parents that shaped you, and they meet the parents that shaped your parents, and they meet the neighborhood that shaped all of them, and the situations and the specific details of that context and the time they grew up in and the circumstances. All of that finds its way in you. It shows up whether we want to admit it or not. And so this becomes incredibly heavy to wrestle with when we realize the implications of what we're saying. That because of Adam's sin, it shows up in our life and you and I will invariably, inevitably, no matter what, no matter who you are, we will have to wrestle, engage with things that you didn't do or didn't create, but it's it's there for you to wrestle with. Nonetheless, just by virtue of the fact that you were born into the family you were born in and that family was ultimately connected to the family that started us all. I remember when I was a kid in elementary school, this is when I found out that I was an old soul, even when I was a kid. I would verbally say out loud, I hate this school. All these kids are immature. (laughs) Can't wait to grow up and be elsewhere. I'm a kid myself. And meanwhile, I was just frustrated with the immaturity around me. Now, why would I say that? Because I hated, despised, whenever the whole class would suffer consequences because of one person. And that was like, oh, because of so-and-so, you all stay back. Like It's not fair. And I get the fact that we would wrestle with this and say it's not fair, but even though it may not feel fair, it doesn't change the fact that it's true. You, we can deny it all we want, yet Adam, the sin of our forebearers, shapes us and impacts us and shows up in our souls, whether we want to face it or not. The rot goes deep. It's deep within, not just our lives individually, but who we are as people. Now, we resist it because of the negative consequences. However, we're all for it when it's positive. And this is the good news, that actually it doesn't just... We just don't hear about the negative, sad, troubling news of the fact that because we're an Adam, this is how we've been impacted. If it just stopped there, it would be very hopeless. But it ends in a different note. I remember my kids were telling me recently about uh, my daughter, actually, specifically. My son had this happen, but specifically my daughter. There was a kid in her class who, like, literally, they don't remember the last time that he got something less than 100. Um, he's just very bright, very academically astute. Um, how many people had somebody like that in your class? Some of you were that person, and you're slow to hold, raise your hand because you don't know where you're going with this, Chris, before I commit, before I show that I was. This is what they said. They, um, they didn't really enjoy having this kid in the class. Here's why. Because they never got their grades curved. You know what that means? And so if, you, if some of you are like, man, it's been a while, I've been in school, remind me, Chris, let me remind you. And so when the, cur- when the grade is curved, it means they'll take the highest grade, which is, assuming it's lower than 100, and they'll curve the entire grade of the class up by whatever kind of points. So the highest grade has an impact because if that highest grade was 98, then you only got two points you can curve. There's only two points remaining. But if the highest grade was 65, then the whole class potentially could have somewhere upwards of a 35 point bump. I've never seen my daughter happier come home from school one day when this kid had a bad test. She was like, dad, we're in. And so (laughs) we're all benefiting. We all got a bump in the curve because of his results. If you could imagine What has transpired in Jesus, we know what's transpired in Adam. Death and sin reigning through death and alienation and separation from God and brokenness. But then we're told the opposite has transpired in Jesus. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What's happened in Jesus... It's not just that he declares you righteous because of what he's done. He makes us righteous. We become righteous people because what we find out, he didn't just say you're forgiven. He also said you're now in a new family. He took us outside of our family of origin and says that happened, but let me tell you what will supersede that and override that. Now you are no longer someone who is just in Adam. Now by faith, you can be someone who is in Christ. And that changes everything. You realize what Scripture is telling us that Jesus has done for us. He's not only declared us forgiven and righteous because of what he's done, But by changing our family of origin, by saying you're no longer just an Adam, now you're in Christ, he changes who we are. I have a friend, he pastors a really great church, and he's an African-American pastor, and his executive pastor is white from the South. And his executive pastor is one of the most dynamic leaders I've met. And as I got to hear this guy's story, I was struck by something he said. This executive pastor could get a job in any church in America, literally, because he's known in many churches. His skill set is unbelievable. He could work at mega churches. He could name his price, so to speak. He's that much in demand. And yet, from his mouth, he said, I will only serve under African-American pastors. He's a white man, grew up in the South. He says, I'll only serve under African-American pastors. Now, if you know nothing about society, let me give you a crash course. That does not happen every day. That's a rare thing, an odd thing to hear said. Because if, uh, if you're white, you're educated, you have some resources, you can call your shots. You, and, and if you can call your shots, why would you choose such a narrow pool of I'll only serve under African-American leaders? It doesn't make sense until you hear his story. His grandfather, his great-grandfather, many of his uncles were not only active members of the KKK, they were filled the role of what's known as the Grand Wizards. That's the head of the chapters. So he grew up in a family lineage, heritage, that the expectancy was that he would grow up actively trying to Oppress, kill, disregard the humanity of African Americans as a way of life. But unlike his grandfather, his father, his uncles, he met Jesus. And he said, because you have changed my life, I will give my life over in this way. My past won't define the future of my family. My family from here on out will be known as people who fought injustice, who served in the margins, who saw the humanity and dignity of African Americans. You know what made that change possible? Christ. Because he found himself in Christ. Like you imagine if he never found himself in Christ... What would be his choices? What would he be limited to? What would be the confines of his life? It would be the continued heritage of racism and bigotry that was normalized for him all his life and the lives of the people that have gone before him. See, your and my situation may not be as vivid, as intense, as heavy as that, yet because of what Jesus has done, we have a similar story to say in that we can say, prior to me being found in Christ, when I look at my life in Adam, I know what I would be. I know what I would be limited by, defined by, marked by. And for some of us, the honest truth, the stuff we don't want to face We would be confined to a life of violence and anger and alcoholism and addictions. We would be perpetuating family brokenness and all sorts of things because it's been in our family, our family, our family. It's all that we've known. It's what we're expected to be. And yet what Jesus has done, he's broken the chain off of humanity. And he says, "Now because of what I've done, you can be found in me, and now the bondage and the vestiges of your chains from Adam don't have to confine you any longer." Did you hear what I just said, or are you just smiling back to me to be polite? Did you hear what I just said is available in Jesus? That could not be better news for someone in my seat. When I look at the fact, I know what my life would be like and what my future would be like. Every day that I serve Jesus, I live into a miracle that he's writing. My kids statistically shouldn't have a dad. I should be in jail if I look at my family past and my history and the confines of my neighborhood and my context, I shouldn't have an education. I shouldn't be able to add value to society in any regard. I should be confined by addictive behaviors, should be telling my story, period. No hope. And yet, because I'm no longer just an Adam, because I'm in Christ a new story is being written. What is the new story that Jesus is justifying work that heals the rot, doesn't just put a band-aid over it? How is that taking shape in your life? What new story Jesus is trying to write in your life that doesn't deny the beginning chapters of what it means to be an Adam, but it says that's not the final word. Isn't it good news that you could be abused and hurt And disregarded and mistreated and Jesus gets in your life and bitterness will not be your defining characteristic. You can find yourself to become a forgiving, gracious person. And the toxicity of the past doesn't reside in you today, not because you're just some great positive thinker, but because the living Jesus resurrected, put you in his family and lineage and says, you can now live as I lived. The gospel is far more than just this label over us that says your shame is written. The gospel, the the, the justifying work of Jesus declares that your family of origin begins elsewhere now. You literally can walk around and rightly identify yourself as a member of Jesus' family. A member of Jesus' family. And because you and I are now members of Jesus' family, he teaches us to live and behave in accordance with the norms of this new family. You know, in Jesus' family, we learn to love our enemies. In Jesus' family, we choose to serve and not be served. In Jesus' family, we don't live Through fear and hoarding, we live with generosity and faith and love. It's a new norm. I shared this before. For years, my wife and I, we got away with telling our kids that bedtime was 7 p.m., those were glorious years. Man, I still think back about those years, good times. Um, then they started interacting with their friends, and they started coming back home like, hey, wait a second, Dad. Um, my friend goes to bed at 10 o'clock. What's going on? They felt cheated. They felt slighted. They felt like, like we were running like, some concentration camp, and like, their friends are living free. And I remember the most liberating thing to say was like, this is how we do it in our home. But my friends are my friends. Do they live in our home? No. Let them enjoy their life there. What home are you a part of? Our home. You're welcome. (laughs) Jesus, because of what He's done, He tells us, You live now in my home. You're my family. You're in me. And my justifying work doesn't just say your sins are forgiven, it says your lineage is changed. You're in Christ. What Jesus essentially is doing, he's not trying to adjust us, he's adopting us. It's a big difference. I'm one of the biggest proponents of therapy. Some of my best friends are therapists. Some of the people that I admire the most are therapists. Therapy has helped me so much individually as a person, my marriage. I can't recommend it enough. And yet, as much as I believe in it, unfortunately, it has its limits. And here's one of the big limits. Therapy can help us become adjusted to and work through our pains and our struggles, and we all need that. But here's one thing I wish therapy could do, but it can't. It can't change the family we came from. It doesn't have the power to do that. It can't give me a different parent. It can't change the neighborhood I grew up in. And it can't limit the impact of that. It helps me adjust to it. But Jesus changes everything. He doesn't just empower us to adjust to some of the experiences we've had and work through them. He changes our very address. We're now found in him. I know for some of us, it's tough to really wrestle with this and accept because maybe we want to have a rosier picture of our situation, of our human experience, Um, and we don't want to fully buy into, like, what Adam did, it impacts us this way. I don't know if it's that serious, or I get that Jesus has to forgive us, but does he really have to change our family of origin? Why this seems so much? Um, I was struck this past week. I was uh, Tuesday. I was at... um, Dr. Keller's memorial service at St. Patrick, and uh, Sam Albury was giving the eulogy, and he referenced Mark chapter 10, and it was a quick moment, but man, did it impact me. If you're familiar with that chapter, Jesus says these words. He says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I want to ask you something. Who needs to be ransomed? Do free people need to be ransomed? Do people who are not encumbered by sin need to be ransomed? Do people who, Adam doesn't impact me and federal headship, I don't know about this. Do those kind of people need to be? Or do bound people need to be ransomed? People who have no hope outside of being ransomed. And Jesus, his description of us is not as free people who just need some slight adjustments. He describes us as people whom he needed to ransom. And that both speaks to the desperation of our situation, but also the glorious nature of God's love. Because it not only tells us that our situation was so dire that we had to be ransomed out of it, but then it also tells us that the living God lovingly chose to pay the price to set us free. You can walk around telling yourself, I'm valuable, I have worth, not because I tell myself that, but because the king of kings died for me, laid his life down for me. So you may reject me, you may not understand me, you may talk about me, you may not invite me, but you know who died for me. If you're looking for self-worth affirmation from the shifting sands of people's opinions and treatments of you, you will be, you'll be headed for a roller coaster of an experience because it comes and goes, it goes up and down. But if you want the bedrock, something that's unchanging to anchor your soul in, You can do so in the love of Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many. So justification is not just Jesus putting a Band-Aid. It's him addressing the very rot, placing us in Christ. And now you and I have been adopted into this new family. You have a new last name. Your family of origin is different. You're in Christ. Yeah, I know the men in your, in your family didn't treat women that way, but you're in Christ now. So that doesn't have to define you. And yeah, I know in your family, uh, families will always get divorced, but you're in Christ now. That doesn't have to define you. I know in, in my family and where we grew up, uh, you know, we were always poor. We were always this or these addictions. Or you're in Christ now. That no longer has to be the defining, dominant characteristic of your story. Jesus adopts us in. He doesn't just adjust us. But like people who have been adopted, the stories of friends that have adopted kids, if you're familiar with people who have lived through that, they'll tell you some really gut-wrenching stories of kids who struggle to adjust to a loving home because they remember a not-so-loving home. And there's always this constant adjustment, this reminder that the past, though real, doesn't define me now. I'm finally in a loving home. When I hear those stories, I think of us. I think of our journey as children, of God who have been adopted into his family, that we were once in Adam alone, no hope, but now because of what Jesus has done, we're in Christ. And what that often means is that we are simultaneously seeking to lay down the brokenness of our past while embracing the hope of what's available to us now, what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we learn a new way of life. If you're struggling today, if you feel like who you used to be in Adam seems to define more who you are today and you're struggling to grab hold of this, I want to encourage you to grab hold of what Jesus has done. To allow that to become your defining characteristic, your dominant core narrative, what tells your story and allow that to sink deeper and deeper into your life. Because what Jesus has done is real. It changes everything. And if you and I grab hold of his justifying work, we won't just walk around as people who have been forgiven from our past and what's been done to us. We can walk around as people who have been transformed to the degree that we're no longer just a part of the family we came from, but we are part of a new family. God's family. And what that makes possible is unlike anything else. Could I invite us to stand as the worship team comes forward? And in these next few moments, as we respond in prayer, in confession, and worship, I want to remind you that the prayer team is in the back, to my right, to your left, and over these next few moments, if you need prayer, if any of the words that were shared earlier or anything the sermon might have stirred for you, all you would have to do is work your way to the back. You can just ease out of your row. And while we're worshiping, you can just go and receive prayer for anything you need, the words that were shared, anything the message might have stirred. Don't leave this place carrying a burden you came in with. Allow the Lord to minister to you and to lift it. With that, could I invite us to raise our hands In the presence of God. And at this moment, as we respond in worship, I'm wondering what is what is Jesus specifically saying to you? What is he saying that he wants? What's the new chapter that he wants to start in you? He says, because you're in me, you no longer have to be defined by what was. And he wants to do a new thing. He wants to strengthen something that comes from him in your life and in the future of your life. What is that thing? He says, because I justified you, that's possible. What's that thing he's saying to you now? Speak to us, Lord. Perhaps what's the thing that comes to mind that really is more who you are in Adam? Your past, your brokenness, your family of origin, the heritage of our forebearers that impacts us. What's the thing that Jesus says that no longer has to define you? That's not the final word. Could we listen to the Lord to speak to us? And let's turn to him now. Jesus, speak to us, minister, meet us as we turn to you now. Let's worship him together.